Hello students of Seneca, this is Lee Mai and welcome to this episode of the night before your English Literature A-level exam, Paper 2, where we'll be focusing on Tennessee Williams' 1947 play, A Streetcar Named Desire. Today's podcast will be split into two parts. First, we'll be focusing on exam strategy, and this will be followed by an overview of one of the many key themes in the play, gender. Now, before we get started, just a little reminder that Seneca will be holding two live streams on our YouTube channel every weekday during exams, starting at 4.45 and 5.30. Now, let's get cracking. So, we can't talk about exam strategy without giving any mention to the infamous AOs, less commonly known as the assessment objectives. Now, it's worth noting that the AOs are the same across all AS and A-level English literature specifications. So stay with me. The AOs are a checklist, if you will, of what you'll be examined on. So it only makes sense to know what exactly is in these AOs to make sure that you're getting those marks. So there are five AOs or five assessment objectives. AO1, articulate informed personal and creative responses to literary texts using associated concepts and terminology and coherent, accurate written expression. In other words, AO1 is all about how you articulate your ideas. AO2, analyse the ways in which meanings are shaped in literary texts. So how you analyse the methods deployed by Williams to achieve certain effects. You can refer to aspects of dramatic form, you can refer to genre, the use of music to evoke certain emotions in the audience, the use of sound, the lighting, the register of the character's dialogue and what this can reveal to us. For example, Stanley's colloquial register in contrast to Stella's much higher register. So the different ways in which Williams uses linguistic devices or stage directions or structure or anything to get a certain point across or to evoke a certain emotion. AO3 is all about context. In other words, you must show an understanding and an appreciation for the literary, social and political context in which the play was written. Now, when was the play written? It was written in 1947. So, with this, think about how the wider context influenced the author, how the text was received by different members of society at the time, and how the text may be viewed by society today. How would feminists view the text? How would Marxists view the text? Whenever you make a point, ask yourself, does the fact that it was set in 1947 have any bearing on the point that I just made? And if so, how? So, for instance, if you had a question about marriage, think, what were society's attitudes towards marriage during this time? Well, we know that the play was written just a few years after the Second World War, and the the war had brought about tremendous social and cultural disruption, including changing attitudes to marriage. So with this in mind, how does this support or go against your line of argument? Next up, AO4. Explore connections across literary texts. This is quite um, self-evident, so we move on to AO5. Explore literary texts informed by different interpretations. 
Right. If you're going to take anything away from this podcast, then it's this. Make sure you consider different interpretations of the text. I repeat, make sure you consider different interpretations of the text. Remember, there is no one fixed reading of any literary text. So now that we've covered DAOs and have hopefully highlighted the importance of DAOs, particularly AO5, multiple interpretations. Let's move on to other more practical tips. So make sure you have a bank of synonyms for the word suggest, because you're going to need it. You could use words like invokes, highlights, displays, demonstrates, connotes, signifies, infers, implies, any of that good stuff. Just make sure you have variation. Next up, introductions. So when it comes to your answers, always aim to not have lengthy and often meaningless introductions. Just pick out some keywords in the question. Paraphrase the question if you prefer, just to make sure you stay on track. It's better to quickly focus on getting on with the task rather than spending too much time on the introduction. Conclusions. Don't have lengthy conclusions either. If you have a conclusion, try to avoid repeating or reiterating what you've already said because you won't get any further marks for this. It's better to either deconstruct the question or to suggest a further error of investigation. Now that we've gone over some exam strategies, let's warm our brains up by going over one of the key themes of the play, that being gender. So we'll split this into two parts, femininity and masculinity. So the central difficulty of the play is that both Stella and Blanche define their own identity in accordance with their relationship with men. This suggests they can't be happy on their own. To the audience, it feels like both women are quite shallow because the only way they can be fulfilled is through the contact with men. Blanche represents a delicate but alluring vision of her femininity, which she believes is attractive to men. This vision seems to be attractive to younger men who relish the experience of an older woman. You could argue that Blanche knows that because of this, she can never be truly independent of men. She relies on them for her image of herself. And even at the end, Blanche is reliant on the hope that Shep Huntley will save her. But in the final reckoning, it's a male doctor who takes her out of this situation and tries to help her. As with Stella, does not need all of this to define her as a woman. For her, pregnancy alone marks her as feminine. But this is also the way she will continue Stanley's line. This means that she's dependent on the male figure of Stanley in a different way. He's the father of a child and, despite Stanley's violence and cheating, she still sticks by him. Eunice is another female figure in the play who is reliant on her husband. She contributes to the idea of problematic femininity in the play by trying to convince Stella that Blanche is telling a lie about the rape. Then we have societal pressures. Um, In many respects, women don't help themselves in the play. But you could also argue that societal and economic pressures prevent them from doing so. So Williams was right to depict them in this way at this point in history. Next up, we have masculinity. 
So when we first meet the character of Stanley, he's presented as animal-like and filled with carnal lust. And in many ways, Stanley comes across, both to the audience and to Blanche, as a creature dominating its territory through aggression and noise, almost intimidating any other male's present. Williams hints at Stanley's sexual nature, but also his low status by labelling him a gaudy seed bearer. Performances on stage tend to emphasise Stanley's musculature and his physicality. Many of the stage directions refer to him taking his shirt off. The presentation of Stanley overtly marks him as the lead ape in a pack. When he shouts at Stella, this is almost like a kind of mating ritual. And Blanche finds it distasteful, but also wholly desirable. Perhaps there's something instinctual in the way she feels about him. We also see another side to Stanley, however. He can be very tender and caring towards Stella, and seems particularly proud of her pregnancy. However, some observers argue that this is negated because of Stanley's aggression and rape of Blanche. Nothing outweighs or can compensate for the horror of his raping. Now for the character of Mitch. Mitch shows off his athleticism and strength. Mitch appears to wish to challenge dominant male, i.e. Stanley, at times. But other times he shows a more sensitive side. He's worried, for example, that Blanche drinks Stanley's alcohol and is concerned as to what his mother will think of Blanche. Initially, Blanche appears to find Mitch's physical form carnally interesting, but he does not offer danger and excitement that Stanley can. And that's our overview of femininity and masculinity. To finish off, we're going to take a few moments to go through the stress buster, which will hopefully help to calm your nerves and make sure you're in great condition. And today we'll be going through Harris and the Hedgehog's Guide to Exam Stress, which is actually my personal fave. So what does Harrison recommend? Number one, wash your hair. And I, I don't know about you, but I always feel so much better after washing my hair or just taking a shower. So try it either the night before or early in the morning if you have time. It just can do wonders. Next up, this might seem quite obvious, but oftentimes when we feel stressed, we forget to just look after ourselves, be that by going outside to take a walk, making sure you don't skip meals, making sure you're eating properly, making sure you're getting enough sleep, making sure you're interacting with friends and family. Finally, from me and everyone else at Seneca, we wish you all the very best of luck. Good luck for your exams. We're going to be releasing night before podcasts before every exam. And if you head on over to YouTube on every weekday, we are going to be doing live streams at 4.45 and 5.30. So make sure you subscribe. And while you're at it, rate us five stars. We're amazing. (laughs) Good luck.